This is KFCF 88.1 FM in Fresno, listener-sponsored radio for Central California. Stay tuned next for Science, a Candle in the Dark. It's back to school week for many of us as we bring you another edition of Science, A Candle in the Dark, our monthly conversation about the wonder of science and how it illuminates our lives in the incredible universe. In association with the Central Valley Cafe Scientifique, we strive to make science a part of our public discourse, especially here in California's Central Valley. I'm your host, Dr. Madhusudan Katti from the Biology Department at Fresno State, and like many of the parents and students heading back to school this this week and last week, I'm also experiencing some, experiencing some pangs of anxiety about how this new school year is going to turn out and how I can do the best to help students in my classroom learn the science content that I'm trying to teach. And that's going to be the subject of our conversation today uh, because while... Science and mathematics is something that we all recognize as being important subjects that drive a lot of modern society and modern life with our technology and, and knowledge of science is important for most citizens. As we've mentioned before on this show and as listeners may be aware, we are also happen to be living in a time when there is a fair amount of uh, fear and anxiety about science. On the one hand, you have the skepticism and fear of science that's fostered by political forces uh, on topics such as evolution or climate change or these kinds of things where there, there are sometimes organized campaigns trying to keep science at bay or to reduce funding for science and and those are larger issues but what I want to focus on today is the other set of anxieties that a lot of people have about actually understanding science and, and mathematics. And in particular, we talk about anxiety towards maths. Math anxiety is a term that we are all familiar with, which is something that strikes me as being a curious thing because as Carl Sagan, uh, you know, the inspiration for the title of our show, he's the one who calls science a candle in the dark, he used to talk about how curiosity and wonder about the world is part of the human nature and part of human c- condition. In fact, we call our species Homo sapiens because we are curious about the world and we are trying to, we have the ability to understand how the world works. And I also believe that most of us, you know, when we are born as babies, we are born curious and we want to use that curiosity to understand how the world works and how we function within our social groups in this world. So a lot of the early learning about the world is sort of a scientific process. Right. Yet, somehow, as we go through schooling and grow into adulthood, 
far too many of us end up being afraid of science or being turned off of this curiosity about science because we think science is something that is that requires some sort of innate intelligence and too many people think that oh i'm not smart enough to understand science or to do mathematics and we lose a lot of people along the way which is which has always puzzles me because if you if you listen to the top scientists now if you ask them and for example i think neil degrasse tyson has been quoted as saying this that if you ask anyone you know what is the the single most important attribute that is needed to be a good productive scientist and mostly they will tell you that you have to have that childlike curiosity so what is it that we lose when we go from being the child to the adult in the modern world through the schooling process which emphasizes science and technology as being important and sometimes you know problematically more important than the arts and you know humanities and that's another subject for a different conversation but the the challenge and the puzzle that i want to try and get deal with today is why we lose that innate drive and curiosity about the world as we grow up and become more anxious about science and mathematics and i want to start off I'll, i have two guests here today and i'll bring it, bring them in uh in a minute but i want to mention one study that's been reported today uh, it came out in the journal psychological science last week it's a study authored by erin maloney and uh from the university of chicago and uh, several co-authors uh it's titled intergenerational effects of parents math anxiety on children's math achievement and anxiety now that's a mouthful of a title but essentially what it's suggesting is that if if as a parent you you have math anxiety and and then if you have children they might also end up being anxious about mathematics and how that is transmitted is something that i think we'll talk with our uh, first guest here uh so let me introduce the guests first and we'll come back to this this study and and build from there so i have with me in the studio dr amanda mortimer uh from the department of psychology uh, at fresno state dr mortimer has a dual phd in psychology and neuroscience from indiana university so she really sits at the interface between neuroscience which is the study of how neurons work in in the in the physiological sense in the brain and clinical psychology which is dealing with issues of mental illness and dementia and things like that she's also a licensed clinical psychologist and she's now an associate professor of psychology at Fresno State welcome to science a candle in the dark amanda well thank you so much for inviting me i'm pleased to be here and our second guest is uh, dr beth weinman who's a geologist uh, she got a phd in geology from vanderbilt university in tennessee she joined fresno state as an assistant professor in the earth and environmental sciences department she studies soils and water quality uh, and was hired as part of a cohort of faculty studying water issues uh, at fresno state and uh, a full disclosure dr weinman and i are part of a new program which is trying to help uh, the freshman class grapple with this anxiety about science and mathematics and do better in progressing through their uh, science and math undergraduate majors on our campus welcome to the show thank Beth. you All right so let's start with you Amanda and get back to this issue of anxiety about studying and you study learning and memory 
So from that perspective, uh, maybe you know, touching on this study that I just mentioned, which, is, which talks about how parental anxiety about mathematics might be transmitted to children. I think it's incredibly important, important to think about the architecture in our brains underneath how we learn things. A lot of times when we're learning things, we think of it as a single process that you just go try to learn something and there you are, you're learning it. Mm -hmm. However, there are really a bunch of different organs in our brains that are in charge of different types of learning. And so the type of learning we mostly want to do when we go to school is something that we'll usually call cognitive memory, where mm -hmm. we're trying to learn explicit facts, trying to learn relationships between things and commit those to memory and be able to bring them back later. So if you think about it, that kind of learning is very useful, but there are also other kinds of learnings that run through completely different structures. And when you think about fear-based learning, that's a completely different set of structures. Um, however, it does actually make cognitive learning a little bit better. But what happens with fear learning is something called your amygdala activates. And it sends out just a really dramatic stop the presses, something really important is happening here signal. And it makes everything in your brain and everything in your body all pay attention to the scary thing that might be considering eating you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really is crucial when we start thinking about things such as math anxiety. How one track focused you get when you're scared. How mm. everything in your brain all reallocates its attention, changes its focus. You're not thinking about, oh, how does that connect to this other thing in this kind of laid-back cognitive memory fashion. You're entirely focused on, yikes, that thing's scary. It might bite me. How do I get away from it? Does that resonate for you? Uh, I could say it resonates to some extent. I, I went through a period of math anxiety in high school, but uh, I've come to appreciate and actually use mathematics in some of my research now. But I've, I've seen this phenomenon of this freezing when you see a, even a simple mathematical equation in a, in a lecture. I can see this sort of students back away from it. Well, and I think the thing that's crucial about this is I'm talking about fear learning in general. And you can yeah. learn to be scared of anything. Yeah. But in our society, we kind of enjoy being scared of math. That's just a plan in our society that math, it's a scary thing. In math itself and science itself are not inherently scary subjects. And that's what the article you were bringing up is really yeah. pointing out. It's not something inherent to the math or science that our children become scared of it. It's the fact that their parents are already scared of it. And then their parents teach them this is a frightening thing. The really cool thing about that article is it demonstrated that while it appears math anxiety is indeed, quote, quote, heritable to first and second graders, it's not heritable in a direct genetic sense. It's heritable based on how much time is the parent with the math anxiety spending helping the student do their math-based homework. So if you have math anxiety and you have a first or second grader, but you take care of other priorities in the home and your partner is the one who does all the homework with them, they're not going to catch that math anxiety from you. It's not genetic. It's something that comes socially. That's really fascinating and and this is something that as educators i think we have sort of struggle with how do we help students overcome this kind of fear learning and so if you can overcome the fear learning or bypass it what other kinds of learnings might be activated so i want to sort of i wonder about what are the ways to 
look on the positive side of thing and based on what we know of learning and memory and and how the different parts of the brain work in the learning process what are effective strategies to help students learn and keep up with the expanding world of scientific knowledge these days i would say the most important aspect of what we know about managing fear is the best way to get through being scared of something is to keep doing it and have no negative outcomes So for example me personally I'm thinking back to when I was in college algebra at one point I had an instructor that would call all the students up to the board and make us do our work on the board and then make rather cutting comments if our work wasn't accurate. Mhm. So I remember that as being a very emotionally upsetting experience. There you are in front of all your peers and I wouldn't say everybody's laughing at you but you know having the instructor laugh at you even if the other students aren't joining in isn't very fun. And so what that does is that activates this whole amygdala based fear program and you're really paying attention to that and you're not learning anything about college algebra. So more exposure to that type of class where the students are getting insulted and are scared is not going to help a bit. However, if you put your student in a math class where the teacher is really stressing getting at the wrong answer is okay it's all about the process it's all about the experience it's all about working towards understanding together so you send your student off to a class that has a kinder gentler approach that's going to get your student over that fear because they're going to be exposed to math the thing they were potentially previously scared of and no negative outcomes and they'll see that negative outcomes in math are not linked together exposures always the answer to unreasonable fears yet the scenario you describe of the professor putting a student on the spot having them do their show their work on the board or calling out on students and and triggering that anxiety is an extremely popular or widespread practice all of us can recall professors who did that kind of thing and and So how did that style of teaching become the norm when what you're suggesting is that the evidence from neuroscience and psychology think suggests that we don't actually learn efficiently by doing that. So in order to be all obnoxiously scientific <laughs> at you, I'd like to introduce something called the Yerkes-Dodson law. And the Yerkes-Dodson law suggests that basically you do everything more effectively if you're kind of anxious but not too anxious. If you're not anxious at all, I tend to tell my students then you lay around on your couch watching reality exactly. TV and eating yeah. Cheetos. Yeah. I mean, if you're not worried about where this month's rent's coming from and you don't care about your career and you're not worried about your children and you have nothing that worries you, why not lay around and eat Cheetos? You got to be anxious to some extent in order mm-hmm. to get out of the door in the morning and achieve. On the other hand, if you're too anxious, if you're really, really scared for your life, then you've got adrenaline running through your whole body. It shifts everything around. It really changes how you process information and you can't learn effectively. And so I think what's going on actually and this I think is going to speak a little yeah. bit to where Beth comes into it is the type of student you're looking for. Yeah. I think that this more traditional put somebody on the spot sort of teaching is really helpful for students who are coming in with an extreme sense of entitlement who already think they're the smartest thing that ever existed and who need some challenging or otherwise they're doing the mental version of eating cheetos <laughs> whereas i think that our students that we deal with here in the valley as well as many other students are usually first generation students and they're not coming in with entitlement they're already coming in pretty scared and so if you challenge them instead of getting them high enough at 
awareness that they're paying attention, what you get is you just knock them over into adrenal and rush fight or flight city. Oh, yes. I'm not on. I don't hear myself. I'm on? Oh, sorry. <laughs> so, yeah. So actually following up on what uh, Amanda was saying, yeah, it's really interesting. So, And we were talking about this the other day. So we've been working together for a while now mm -hmm. developing these courses and working on student success. And it's really interesting. When I first started teaching a couple years ago, I really thought that I would do, it was okay to do what was done to me. <laughs> and I was afraid quite a lot in school, but I had this persistence mentality, this thing like I could overcome. And not everyone has that. And so that's one of the things that recently has just kind of, I've had that Copernican 180 degrees kind of mental shift that a lot of our students think that they're stupid if they can't do something and they won't persist. And so I don't, we had a recent training on, and you could probably speak to this too, a recent training on helping our students succeed. And Ida uh, Jones, one of our um, TILT faculty actually put up on the board, um, PQ plus CQ is greater than IQ. And she just means persistence plus the curiosity is greater than IQ. And, and so mm -hmm. I think that that's, as long as we have curiosity, I don't think that we're losing people for, from curiosity. I think that we're losing them in the persistence mindset. So when, it, when you're talking about losing students, I just want to you know, re remind us and, and also the audience in terms of what we are talking about with the Fresno State student population. Right? We have students mainly coming in from the valley. And you know we know we have a diverse population in the valley. We have uh, what we call a minority majority sort of institution. We have a lot of students from underrepresented minorities, which is particularly the case in the sciences, right? I mean, nationally, sciences tend to be dominated by certain majority groups, and and we tend to especially lose women and uh, people of color from science as they go through undergraduate, graduate, and, and, you know, into the professional scientist tracks. So can you tell us something about what the demographic is of our yeah, student body? Yeah, it was really surprising to me, too, um, and that's one thing that I've learned tremendously about. Um, I didn't know, so we had this uh, high-impact training um, over the summer, and we discovered that because white men tend to do so well, so they're the traditional... Um, majority in sciences that in for us if our system graduates one non-majority physics student we change a huge demographic and so we can have huge impact just by supporting one student within our programs and so that kind of threw me uh, mm -hmm. a bit so it's very different than what I came in with and also on top of that that most of our students are first-generation students, and I didn't know that when they go home, they don't have necessarily the support. So the parents who, who I think parents will either tell them go to work, or they'll tell them, oh my God, this is hard, this is hard, and scare them mm -hmm. uh, about math. And so um, there are more s support resources on campus now because our campus understands that our students need better support at studying. They don't know necessarily how to study. Their family, when they go home, doesn't know how to study. And also, a lot of our students are socioeconomically um, depressed, so they're in the lower socioeconomic bracket. And again, a lot of our students, so one-fifth of our students have parents who didn't finish high school. So we are reaching out to a different demographic. So that brings it back to the, this question of anxiety, because I guess a lot of our students have insecurity, even in terms of their, their physical health often, because you know we, we have... Uh, recent study on campus showing that there's a high amount of food insecurity among our students. So the, the 
university started programs to try and address that. And we also have students, uh, majority of our students are eligible for Pell Grants, which are for socioeconomically disadvantaged students. So they're economically insecure. They might be insecure in terms of food. And yet, you know, many of them want to get undergraduate degrees and maybe proceed in careers in the science and mathematics, which are inherently sort of anxiety-inducing disciplines the way society perceives them. So, so are we talking about, doc, back to Dr. Mortimer, are we talking about a different kind of anxiety there from the one you were talking about, which the professor challenges students? I think there are multiple types of anxiety all going at the same time and, again, driving this level of anxiety up so high that it is really hard to engage that more complex cognitive learning machinery. Um, as somebody who grew up fairly socioeconomically challenged myself, I more so on the economics than the socio part, <laughs> but I grew up in a very poor family. And with that experience, I found it incredibly, and here's my clinical side coming out, shame-inducing, hanging out in places where you're not supposed to hang out. Mm -hmm. If you grow up wearing your older brother's cast-off clothes, going to the mall and going shopping in a mall store was something that for me was very emotionally challenging for a long time because I felt like I didn't fit in. And if you don't fit in and you're kind of small and kind of grubby and then the people will look at you and they'll know you're not the kind of person who should be here. Mm -hmm. And I realize that this all sounds a little weird from the outside. Uh, Touchy-feely. But, yeah. but it that's the definition of shame is being outcast among a group. And I think that you really can't overestimate how powerful this is to our students coming in, feeling outcast by higher academia. That's not where they come from. That's not where their parents are. That's not where their family is. They're going into a completely new setting that they feel has prejudged them and found them wanting. And I think it's incredibly important for us to reach out to them and to try to relieve that form of anxiety by telling them, no, we want you. You are important to us. You will bring really useful, interesting insights. But I think that they are simply incredibly keyed up with anxiety walking through the door because of class-based issues without even getting to the part where they get insulted by annoying professors. <laughs> so in terms of you know being in that annoyed professor side of things, all of us are in, in that boat and we've have learned to understand our student body now. What what does your research and your understanding of learning and memory tell us in terms of what is a good way to, if you will, try and induce that optimal anxiety which promotes the, the positive learning without freezing people up into, you know, not learning anything at all? I find I'm, I'm a big fan, and so is everybody else over at Fresno State, of having standards with a capital S. <laughs> everybody <laughs> wants standards. And I think that's important because mm -hmm. if you don't have standards, I, I'm actually really against grading on improvement in my mm -hmm. classes because, of course, my students start out not knowing much, and, yes, knowing something's great. Mm -hmm. But they need to know a base level of what I want them to know wherever they're starting from. I want to help lift them up until they get to where they need to be. So how do I manage to try to make that happen at least? A lot of it, I think, is reaching out and with absolute words, putting it into direct words. I care about your success. I care about how well my students do. I'm really invested in it, and that's why this is my career. I really want you to do well. I really want to hear from you if you're having a problem. I actually also tell them, which is has the side benefit of being true, that I just hate giving people these and Fs. And then I tell them, which is unfortunately also true, but I totally do it because <laughs> if you don't know the stuff, then you haven't earned 
a good grade. I'm not giving you a grade. You're earning a grade. But I really, really want to help you earn a good grade. And I think really putting it out there in actual words, not just warmth of manner, but actual words that I care, that I'm invested, come to me. I really want to help you. Send me an email. I answer emails quickly. Just kind of this ongoing trope. And I don't just say it once. I end up saying it five or six or eight times because people don't remember something you just say once. And if they're kind of anxious, they're not even thinking about the fact you're saying it. But it's something that I say on an ongoing, over and over basis until it's probably kind of a joke, I would guess, to Mm -hmm. the students. But the fact it's kind of a joke means it kind of stuck with them. And I think that helps make them feel more safe to where they can ask for help, to where they can start grappling with the complex material. I really do insist that they learn if they're going to earn their grades. And this gets at what, uh, Dr. Weinman, what we are trying to do with the, the first year experience program and focusing a, a fair bit of that on getting students to feel like they belong in the sciences and that they can perform at the level that's expected of them. Uh, would you care to add? Yeah, so we spent, yeah, belonging is something that I, you know, I, I don't remember ever getting any teaching on belonging. Does it matter? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so we actually spent a good four days with students having a summer experience uh, where we focused on belonging. Mm-hmm. And after four days, their sense of belonging, we, we did surveys, and these are standardized surveys. I don't have all the information, but uh, some of our group do. And they show that their belonging sense increased. And so these students are now, if you, if you compare to other data, would, and we use the projections from other data, um, these students sh- should not be as easily falling through the cracks because they have more sense of belonging. Like, they, mm-hmm. they understand and they feel like they're part of our campus. They feel like they're part of the College of Science and Math. And they also feel like they have friends and they know also where to find help if they, if they are having problems. And so engendering this feeling of belonging is key. Uh, to It's one of the high-impact practices, the first-year experience focusing on belonging. And so a lot of data shows that students do better if they have a really good sense. Yeah, and this also sort of makes me wonder about the other thing about science and this perception people generally have that science is uh, a body of knowledge and a number of facts that you have to memorize and remember, and that's kind of how a lot of us were taught as well. And I know know, some of our colleagues continue to sort of emphasize that, which is also a challenge because the content, the amount of knowledge there is in science is constantly growing and changing. And to to cultivate a, a scientific mindset among our students, we need to have a different approach, I think, especially with the explosion of information in this information age. The real challenge is is not so much remembering things, Dr. Mortimer, right? You're talking about memory centers activating in the brain because of different triggers, but how to actually process the information. I think that's true. I think you also, however, have to have a base level of Mm -hmm. knowledge to create a cognitive net. You need to have an understanding of what it is you're contemplating. And I think that base level of knowledge really is crucial. But how you fill it in and what are what are the ornaments you hang on your Christmas tree of knowledge, that changes all the time, and it should in yeah. science. Yeah. So that's kind of the the big challenge going forward, I guess. And, you know, we've, we've embarked on what is sort of a science experiment in the way we are <laughs> teaching. So I think, you know, just to get a little meta at the end here, I guess we are trying to apply our scientific understanding of how people learn to how 
we teach the science and and hopefully that will result in maybe you know we can establish uh, or find some new ways to encourage uh, our minority students and women and you know these underrepresented groups to do better in science and find that one physics student who changes the demographic <laughs> of the field <laughs> right so that's and that really is a remarkable thing i remember yeah. thinking about that as well is that just a few students can change the nature of a discipline i want to thank you both for being on the show uh, and uh, you know hopefully i'll see you at the cafe scientifique in the coming months uh, just to remind our listeners uh, we will be back uh, on on air with this show next month again on the 4th tuesday of of september but the central valley cafe scientifique will resume operations and we return to peeves pub on monday september 14th and this will be our ninth season note that this is not the first monday of the month which is typically our our day of the month for the cafe scientifique because september the first monday is labor day and you know we'd, we'd like to have you have a day off as well so we make an exception and typically hold the cafe on the second monday of september but we return to the first monday schedule in october and hopefully i think october we might actually have dr mortimer presenting so for more information about the cafe and announcements of of upcoming events please visit our website at valleycafesci.org or find us on facebook and twitter the show is produced by me madhusudan katti and uh, vik bedoyan who's at the controls today and the theme music was composed by scott hatfield so i'll see you next month and remember until then happy sciencing because science is a verb